Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother forty wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father forty-one. Or did she? We've had our shares of trials of the century on cocktails of crime and fashion. The Lindbergh Baby, Leopold and Loeb, Charles Manson, just to name a few. But one of the first trials of the century occurred in the latter years of the 19th century. Like the others, it involved a horrible crime. Like the others, it involved a crush of media attention. Reporters from all over the world descended on a sleepy town, and magazines sent their best writers. Telegraph operators kept busy reporting the day's events all over the nation and the world. Everyone, it seemed, had an opinion. And unlike the other trials we've covered, most people believed the defendant was innocent. But I think it's safe to say none of the others inspired a grim, macabre nursery rhyme that's still recited today. So, as you listen to this old-fashioned tale of murder and mayhem, mix yourself that quintessential American cocktail. Enjoy an old-fashioned as we explore the mysterious case of Lizzie Borden. August 4th, 1892, dawned in Fall River, Massachusetts. It seemed to be just another hot summer day. Adele Churchill was a widow who used to be married to the mayor of Fall River. After he died, she fell on hard times financially, and to make ends meet, she took in boarders. But she still viewed herself as the unofficial watchdog of her community. Some might say she was a busybody. On this particular morning, she kept looking out her window, keeping an eye on the goings-on, on the comings and goings of her neighbor. Next door, she saw Lizzie Borden anxiously peering out of her kitchen screen door as if she was looking for something or someone. What's the matter, Lizzie, she asked. Oh, Mrs. Churchill, do come over. Someone has killed father. As Adele Churchill bolts out of her house, let's take a moment to consider her neighbors. Father was Andrew Borden. He was 69 years old and one of the wealthiest men in Fall River. He started out as a furniture maker, but over the years began investing in real estate. He owned several properties and other businesses around town and sat on the board of a local bank. His net worth in 1890 dollars was over a quarter of a million. Today, that would be about $8 million, a very princely sum. But he didn't flaunt his wealth. His house only had running water for a few years, and he was known around town as a cheapskate. Once, when a number of people in the house were ill, and his housekeeper sent for a doctor, he stood on the front steps and told the doctor to leave that he wasn't going to pay for a house call. Mother was Abby Borden. She was Andrew's second wife. His first wife, Sarah Morse, was the mother of his two daughters. She died in 1863. Two years later, he married Abby Gray, a 37-year-old, never-married daughter from a financially struggling family. Emma was Andrew's oldest daughter. She was 12 when her mother died, and her relationship with her stepmother was formal at best. Emma never married and still lived at home. Finally, there was Elizabeth, or Lizzie the youngest Borden. She was 32 years old on that fateful August morning, and like her sister, she had never married. As a child, she called Abby mother, and their relationship seemed to be fairly close. 
But later on, something happened. And from that point on, she referred to her stepmother not as mother, but as Mrs. Borden. Of the two daughters, Lizzie seemed closest to her father. In fact, her middle name was Andrew, after her father. When she was young, she gave him a small gold ring that he wore all the time, even though he never wore a wedding band. In 1892, it was generally not considered proper for young women from well-to-do families to work, so Emma and Lizzie relied on their father to support them. They each received an allowance of $4 a week, the same as their stepmother. But out of her $4, she was expected to pay for household expenses. And so, as Mrs. Churchill races to the Borden home, we still need to introduce two other members of the household. Bridget Solomon, known as Maggie, was the family maid. She was 26 years old on the day of the murders and came from an Irish family. And finally, the girl's uncle, John Morris, was a sometime guest at the house. He would come to visit. And on occasion, his visits would last for over a year. He was 69, the same age as Andrew Borden, and he was the brother of Andrew's first wife. But back to our story. When Mrs. Churchill sprinted across the yard, she found Lizzie in the kitchen. Two other people arrived soon after. Lizzie had asked Bridget to summon Seabury Bowen the family doctor, and also a close friend, Alice Russell. Alice arrived at the house and took charge. Lizzie was in the kitchen, and Alice began fanning her. Dr. Bowden went into the living room, where he found Andrew Borden laying half on the couch. Blood was still dripping from horrendous wounds on his head and face. Dr. Bowen left to send a telegram to Emma, who was away visiting friends in Fairhaven, some 30 miles from Fall River. Meanwhile, Mrs. Churchill asked Lizzie where she was while her father was murdered. I was in the barn, looking for a piece of iron to make a sinker for a fishing rod, she said, noting that she had planned to go fishing the next week. Bridget was becoming very concerned about Abby Borden. Lizzie said that her stepmother had received a note from a sick friend and had left to tend to her. Bridget suggested calling Abby's half-sister, Jane Gray, and asking if she knew where she was. Lizzie volunteered that she thought Abby may have returned by that time and gone back upstairs. Bridget and Mrs. Churchill only went high enough on the stairs to look inside the guest room where they saw Abby Borden laying face down on the floor. Returning downstairs, Alice Russell asked, Is there another? Yes, Mrs. Churchill replied. Oh, no, cried Lizzie. I, too, will have to go to the cemetery. When Dr. Bowden returned, he examined Abby's body. He first thought that perhaps she had died of fright. She was barely five feet tall and weighed over 200 pounds. But as he looked closer, he saw that the cause of death was the same as her husband. She had several horrendous blows to her head. Instead of fresh dripping blood, the blood was dark and coagulated. There was no doubt that she had died well before Andrew. Enter the police. The lead investigator for the Fall River Police was Marshal Rufus Hilliard. He had immediately took charge of the investigation and began questioning all of the usual suspects. He was initially assisted by Assistant Marshal John Fleet and Officer Phil Harrington. Harrington first questioned Lizzie. He said she seemed very calm and she showed little emotion, even though her parents had just been murdered. 
Later, he joined Fleet and other officers in a search of the barn where Lizzie claimed to have been during the murder. He told Fleet, I don't like that girl. He also said that he couldn't believe she spent 20 minutes inside the barn. The police began talking to business associates and employees of Andrew Borden, but couldn't identify any who had an opportunity or even a motive to murder. They initially suspected a migrant worker around town, but he had an alibi, so they had to immediately release him. They also suspected John Morse may have been involved, since he was a stranger in town. They also thought perhaps he resented Andrew, who remarried so soon after his sister's death. Add to that rumors that Morse and Lizzie had a, quote, closer than normal uncle-niece relationship. But these rumors were never proven. And Morse also had an alibi for the morning. Dr. Bowden also fell under suspicion. He had escorted Lizzie to church at the Second Congregational Church on occasion, and there was gossip that they were romantically involved and that Andrew disapproved. But these rumors were also found to be without foundation. And lastly, Bridget the maid fell under suspicion. She was, after all, in the vicinity of the house at the time of the murders, but she too had an alibi. After talking to neighbors and townspeople, the police determined that Andrew had been seen around town the morning of the murder. According to Bridget and Lizzie, he left the house at 9.15. He walked downtown and talked to several people about business matters and then returned home at 10.45. He found the front door locked. He knocked several times and finally Lizzie answered the door and he told her that he was going to lay down and take a nap. His body was discovered an hour later at 11.45. The last time anyone saw Abby was earlier that morning when she had told Bridget to wash the windows, both inside and out. She went upstairs at 9.30 and was probably killed then. The police had eliminated all the initial suspects. Only Lizzie remained. The Borden's funeral was held on August 6th. Three days later, District Attorney Hosea Knowlton convened an inquest. The purpose of the inquest was to determine the cause of death and whether a crime had been committed. But from the outset, it seemed that Knowlton conducted it more like a trial, determined to get evidence that Lizzie had murdered her father and her stepmother. The Bordens retained their family attorney who requested that he be allowed to be present when Lizzie testified at the inquest. The judge denied that request. The district attorney called Bridget to the stand. He asked her about the morning of the crime, but he also pressed her on the family dynamics in the household. She reluctantly testified that the relations were somewhat strained. The daughters did not approve of their stepmother and, in fact, in the last few years, actually ate upstairs while their parents ate downstairs. She also talked about a dispute that arose in 1887 between the daughters and their stepmother. Bridget also testified that a year earlier the house had been burglarized and that the locks were installed in all the rooms and that most of the family locked their bedrooms whenever they left the room. Next, Knowlton called Lizzie. She testified for over two days, and Knowlton hammered on several inconsistencies in her testimony regarding her whereabouts during the murder and exactly what she was doing for the 20 minutes that she said she was in the barn looking for a piece of iron. He quizzed her extensively about what she was wearing that day. Earlier in the day, people saw her wearing a blue dress. But by the time the police arrived to investigate, she had changed into a pink one. He then moved on to the family dispute that Bridget had told him about. In 1887, Andrew purchased Abby's family home from her sister Jane Gray because the family was in financial difficulty and faced eviction. 
Lizzie and Emma were quite upset about their father spending money on their stepmother's family while they only received $4 a week. They confronted Andrew, and he eventually agreed to buy them a similar-priced piece of property worth $2,800. It was after this that Lizzie stopped calling Abby mother and began referring to her as Mrs. Borton. Even during the heated inquest questioning, Lizzie corrected Knowlton when he referred to Abby as her mother. Finally, Knowlton pressed Lizzie on the whereabouts of a hatchet handle. The police had found a broken hatchet in the cellar, covered with ash, but the handle was missing and seemed to have been freshly broken off. Lizzie claimed that she didn't know anything about a handle. After the inquest, the police believed they had more than enough evidence to charge Lizzie with murder. Admittedly, the case was circumstantial, but she was the only person home at the time of the murders, and her stories were inconsistent. She was arrested. The arrest caused an uproar in Fall River. Many people wrote letters to the newspaper claiming that the police were persecuting Lizzie. Most of the people of her class rallied around her and proclaimed her innocence. They believed that the police could keep looking for an intruder, probably an immigrant. There was, after all, a fairly large immigrant population who mostly performed low-paying jobs around town. Among the working-class people, however, many had no problem believing that Lizzie Borden had, in fact, killed her parents. Lizzie's attorney, Andrew Jennings, was primarily a business lawyer and knew that in a capital murder case, he would need to bring an experienced criminal attorney on board. He retained a former prosecutor, Melvin Adams, to handle the main part of the proceedings. Later, they also hired George Robinson, a former governor of Massachusetts. Adams was an aggressive attorney, known for his cross-examination skills, whereas Robinson would bring a balance of folksy but logical oratory to the arguments. Following her arrest, Knowlton brought her before a judge for a preliminary hearing. Then, as now, the purpose of the preliminary hearing was to determine if the state had enough evidence to establish that Lizzie probably committed the murders. The judge ruled that they had met their burden. In fact, in pronouncing that Lizzie would have to stand trial, he said that if she had been a man, there would be absolutely no doubt that she was guilty. Lizzie languished in jail until the trial. She was, however, afforded a bit more comfort than a male defendant would have received. She had her own cell and was even able to have some of her own furnishing moved in from her home. Friends cooked her meals for her and brought them every day so she didn't have to eat the jail food. She was even allowed to have a cat named Daisy with her. She spent her days in her cell over the winter and spring reading the novels of Dickens and other popular authors. Her trial began on June 15, 1893, and lasted 15 days. Court was in session every day except Sunday, and the all-male jury, women were not allowed to serve on juries in Massachusetts until 1950, were sequestered in a hotel. It was one of the hottest summers in recent memory. The heat in the courtroom was stifling, and it was packed every day with interested townspeople, and journalists from all over the country. The trial started out well for the prosecution. They established a timeline that showed Lizzie was the only person who was at the house at the time of both murders. They also showed that neighbors didn't see anyone else around the house during those times. They also attempted to present a surprise witness, a pharmacist who said that the day before the murder, Lizzie Borden came to his pharmacy to buy prusic acid, a colorless, odorless poison. She said that she wanted to buy it to cure a sealskin cloak. The pharmacist refused to sell it to her without a doctor's order. Lizzie became very upset and left. Attorney Adams attempted to shake the pharmacist's identification, 
but two other customers confirmed it was, in fact, Lizzie. When the prosecution attempted to introduce this evidence, however, the judge disallowed it. The autopsy had already revealed, according to a doctor's testimony, that there was no poison found in either one of her parents' stomach after death. The judge said then that that was irrelevant and would just seek to prejudice the jury against Lizzie, so they never heard that testimony. Alice Reynolds also dealt a blow to Lizzie's case. She testified that Lizzie had burned her blue dress the morning of the murder before changing into her pink one. But there were victories for the defense as well. The case may have turned on a ruling from the judge that none of Lizzie's testimony at the inquest could be used at trial. He said that she had not been warned that her testimony at the inquest could be used against her, and to permit it would violate her right against self-incrimination. But the most damning blow to the prosecution may have been when the assistant marshal, John Fleet, was destroyed on the stand by Attorney Adams. The testimony Fleet gave at the preliminary hearing and the testimony that he gave at the trial concerning his initial search of Lizzie's room and his testimony about where he found the hatchet and what condition it was in were wildly inconsistent. At one point, Adams asked Fleet to pick one of his stories and settle on it, and just to admit that the other one was a lie. The courtroom broke out in laughter, and Fleet's credibility vanished. Finally, on the 20th day of June, the case went to the jury. Before they left the room, the judge asked Lizzie if she had anything to say. It was her right. She stood and in a confident voice said, I'm innocent. I will leave all other arguments to my counsel. The jury filed out of the room, and 90 minutes later they returned. Before the clerk even asked for their verdict, the foreman yelled, She's not guilty! The courtroom erupted in cheers, and the judge set Lizzie Borden free. The jurors later said that they took an immediate vote upon entering the jury room, and they unanimously voted not guilty. They decided it wouldn't look good for them to immediately return, so they ate lunch and whittled away some time before notifying the court. Later, one of the jurors sent Lizzie a photograph of the entire jury that was taken before they left the jury room. She personally wrote a thank you note to each of the jurors. After the trial, Lizzie and Emma returned to the house on 2nd Street and almost immediately sold it. They bought a much more expensive home on French Street in the elite section of Fall River. Lizzie named it Maplecroft. Lizzie also stopped calling herself Lizzie and instead began signing her name, Elizabeth. But if Lizzie thought that she could return to her old life, she was sadly mistaken. She found that she was no longer welcomed at the Second Congregational Church, where she had previously taught Sunday school and volunteered. She was a continued subject of gossip by both the upper and lower economic classes in Fall River, but she really didn't seem to mind. She lived the rest of her life in her hometown and died in Maplecroft in 1927. She was buried next to her father, her mother, her stepmother, and her infant sister. Emma died 10 days later and was also buried in the family plot. The Borden family, driven apart in life, was at last reunited in death. To this day, Authors and amateur sleuths around the world debate whether Lizzie Borden was, in fact, guilty. Perhaps an editorial in the New York Times, written during the trial, three days before the jury came back with their verdict, sums it up best. Will it remain a mystery? It is many a year since a criminal case in this country has excited such universal interest and been the subject of so much discussion as the Borden murder. It has all the fascination of a mystery about which there may be a thousand theories, 
and upon which opinions may differ as variously as the idiosyncrasies of those who form them. There is so little absolute evidence that everybody can interpret the probabilities and circumstantial indications to suit himself, and much will depend upon his general view of human nature and its capabilities. There seems to be little prospect that the mystery will be cleared up by the trial. The verdict, if there shall be a verdict, will make little difference. Thank you, Dad. That was so awesome. Uh, I had never heard all of the details of that case. And just to let you all know, my dad read a book called The Trial of Lizzie Borden by, who's the author, Dad? By Kara Robertson. She's uh, an attorney and also used to, she at one point, I believe, clerked uh, at the Supreme Court. Yes. Well, he, he read that book in like a day. So, claps for Dad. And uh, if you are interested in reading more about this case, I'm guessing you would recommend that book. Absolutely. It's a great book. (laughs) I I definitely want to read it myself. So, And some good pictures of the murder scene, by the way. Yes, I won't be posting any, so you can Google it or look in the book because it's gross. So, (laughs) And I don't want to scare anybody. Well, before we get into discussing this crime, I have... A pretty fun trends of the crime section for me because we've never gone back this far. So I had some fun doing a little research on this. I I kept it brief and I found this information from an article from Fashion History Timeline by Harper Franklin. It's just called 1890 to 1899. And I broke it down in a few different sections. So this period of time and fashion was the new woman era different than Dior's new look in the 40s that we've talked about before. This is something totally different. So this is called the new woman. Due to the introduction of new manufacturing technologies, there was a boom in ready-to-wear clothing. Women had new levels of independence. Many worked outside of the home. Obviously not the Borden ladies, but, you know, non-upper-class women were working outside of the home. Uh, The new woman was an intellectual young female who worked, cycled, and played sports. The silhouettes, uh, they had a vertical puff at the shoulder, bell-shaped skirts, nipped waists to create an hourglass effect. There was also the introduction of the straight front corset. This forced a woman's chest forward and hips backward into a curvilinear S shape. So when you see those pictures of like, the old-fashioned lady and her like butt is sticking out and her like her body looks like an S. That's what the straight front corset did. There were some strict rules for fashion at the time. You had to have different clothing for morning, afternoon, and evening wear. So I'm kind of surprised knowing that, that it was weird that Lizzie Borden changed from a blue dress to a pink dress. Because this says you were supposed to wear different clothing from the morning to the afternoon to the evening. So, I don't know. We could talk about that more later, but anyway. In the morning, you were supposed to wear high necklines and long sleeves. Afternoon, uh, opened at the neck and featured shortened sleeves. And then in the evening, you bared your chest and arms. And lastly, perhaps the most well-known thing about the turn of the 20th century was the Gibson girl. Uh, This woman was in the illustrations of Charles Dana Gibson, and she was the feminine ideal from the 1890s throughout the Edwardian era. The drawings were inspired by Gibson's wife, Irene, and her four sisters. And she was, this is an excerpt from that article that I mentioned at the beginning of the section. The Gibson girl was flawlessly beautiful with a voluminous hairstyle framing her face. She was slender with a nipped waist, but still attractively voluptuous. Often wearing shirtwaists and tailor-maids, she participated enthusiastically and skillfully in sport. Most importantly, the Gibson girl possessed a self-assured grace and a cool confidence, dominant and independent in relations with men, an attitude sometimes associated with the new woman of the period. However, the Gibson girl was less controversial than the new woman. She would not have been a suffragette or politically engaged. I think a lot of that has stuck around. 
as being the cool, ideal woman. And as sickening as that is, because I, I mean, I, I think times are changing because we are finding the importance of, you know, being independent. Like we know the importance of being independent and understanding what's happening in our world and in politics. But I feel like the cool girl thing is to act like you're so breezy and you don't care. You know, I feel like a lot of that has stuck around. What do you think, Dad? Yeah, I, I think so. In fact, uh, I just saw this morning there was a, an article on, um, I believe it was, um, I believe it may have been in the New York Times. Actually, there's a there's a pastor at a uh, General Baptist Church in Texas who's in a little bit of trouble because he preached a sermon uh, a couple weeks ago encouraging women to be like his uh, like a trophy wife. Uh-oh. Like Melania Trump. And he said, people, you need to dress for your men. You need to uh, be attractive for your men. You need to lose weight. He said, not everybody can be a trophy wife like Melania, but that's what you should all strive for. And uh, some of the denominational officials didn't take kindly to that, and he's been placed on leave of absence. So, yeah, I would agree. I think we you know, a lot of a lot of people still place um uh, place a premium on on looks and uh, attitude as opposed to intelligence and and social involvement. Yeah. Uh, Gross. And please don't say that about women because obviously we have a lot more to offer. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I'm I'm glad he's being um, reprimanded for those statements personally. Do you have anything to add about 1890s fashion? Well, I noticed in... um Robertson's book, there are a lot of illustrations, and it seemed like uh, most of the illustrations of, of the attorneys and police officers, they're, they're wearing uh, high collars mm-hmm. and uh, uh, cutaway coats and top hats. They showed the judges walking to court, and they all, all had on their, um, their top hats. And the hat, uh, what's the one that starts with the eight? The Homburg, it looks like. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, the double-breasted coats, it looks like, canes, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, handlebar looked, mustaches. Right, it looked like most of the men who are pictured in the book uh, have handlebar mustaches, a few beards, but uh, it was mostly, uh, looked like mustaches by the 1890s, it seemed to be in fashion. Tell us about the old-fashioned this week, why you chose it and what you put in it. All that jazz. Well, the old fashioned, I just assumed since we were talking about an old fashioned uh, murder, we needed an old fashioned drink. And what's more appropriate than the old fashioned? Uh, the old fashioned is a very simple cocktail. It's, uh, it's whiskey, bitters, and sugar. Uh, now, by the 1960s, uh, people had tried to dress it up a little bit. When I first started making old fashions, I would muddle. Uh, a quarter of an orange and a couple cherries, and it, it gave it kind of a fruity punch. But uh, I've since gone back to just the the traditional old fashioned, which are just those three ingredients. And I use rye whiskey, but but bourbon is certainly acceptable in an old fashioned. But it it is my favorite drink and has been since uh, since I encountered my hero Don Draper from uh, Mad Men, that that great television show. So. Whenever I drink an old-fashioned, I just imagine I'm an ad executive in New York. (laughs) Well, it's not my favorite drink. I can tell you that. You guys probably saw that in the cocktail (laughs) video. Yes. (laughs) You you made an even worse face for this one than you did with the martini. I don't know what it is. Uh, It's not that it tastes bad. It's just it's so strong. And I don't, it's like I'm never expecting it. And I, my face just moves. Mm -hmm. I don't. I don't mean to look like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. I don't mean to look ugly and grossed out. That's all right. But if you like whiskey, you'll love it. That's the drink for you. We started this episode with the Lizzie Borden rhyme that most of you have probably heard. And f- so I did I did a little bit of a a deep dive. If you listen to Office Ladies, they're always doing deep dives. I did a little bit of a deep dive, more of a shallow dive on the origins of the rhyme. I couldn't find too much. Folklore says the rhyme was made up by an anonymous writer to sell newspapers. So that's pretty boring. Some attribute it to the anonymous Mother Goose. 
There's also a, a lesser known second verse. Andrew Borden now is dead. Lizzie hit him on the head. Up in heaven he will sing. On the gallows she will swing. <laughs> Which she did not. No. So. <laughs> and I've never heard I'd never heard the second verse. And of course the rhyme itself contains many factual errors. First of all, uh, the Bordens were not killed with an axe. They were killed with a hatchet, which is a small version, smaller and sharper version of an axe with a short handle. And uh, Abby Borden did not receive 40 whacks. She received some either somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 to 19, uh, but not 40. And uh, Andrew uh, received either nine or 10 whacks. So it um, wasn't quite as bad as the uh, as the rhyme indicates, but uh, they were both messed up. Uh, the uh, The initial hit on Andrew went through his skull. Uh, it cut his eye in half and also his cheekbone in half. That's why a number of people question whether whether Lizzie could have done it. Most medical professionals think she could have based on the angle of the axe or the hatchet. I'm sorry. Tell us more about assuming Lizzie did this, which mm -hmm. I don't see any other uh, person mm -hmm. who could have done this. Tell us more about the motive, about why she did it. That's the mystery. Um, the prosecution uh, in their in their closing arguments, you know, readily said, we don't have to prove motive. We just have to prove the facts and the motive may never be known. Uh, there are a number of of. Uh, conjectures. Uh, some people thought that Lizzie was just tired of living in a sheltered environment, not having any money to spend on herself. And uh, she had taken a trip to Europe with, with a cousin, I think about a year before the murders, maybe even less than a year. And it was really her first time away from home. And some people have speculated, you know, that was her first taste of freedom. And she just really couldn't stand going back to live the rest of her life, uh, essentially on the top floor of a house in Fall River, Massachusetts. Other people have, have thought that perhaps she was involved in a love affair with someone. There have been a number of people who've been mentioned, uh, including her uncle, John Morris, the doctor, uh, other people around town, and that her father just didn't approve of the, uh, of the match. And she thought this was a way to, you know, again, get freedom. Um, that she just didn't like her stepmother and uh, that she had to get rid of her. And then knowing, well, if I get rid of her, I've got to make it look like a, look like a, a double murder. And so she killed her father. I don't think we'll ever know the motive to this one. What do you think? I agree. What's interesting to me is... She was 32 years old, and by that time, I feel most people have a matured brain that they would think there's another way out of this than, like, their mind wouldn't go to murder. That feels more like an adolescent way of thinking, where you don't think through the consequences or the finality of it. So I wonder if the way she was raised kind of kept her from maturing fully. I don't know. It's just, unless she had, you know, psychopathy or sociopathy, it seems like a, like a way I'll get to this later, but a way that a, uh, like a teenager would think if they felt trapped. Some of the newspapers and magazine articles of that era expected her attorneys to plead, uh, to put forth an insanity plea. But uh, Attorney Adams, who was brought on to actually argue the case, uh, immediately said, "No, we're going we're, we're to get a, an acquittal, so we're not going to plead insanity." Hmm. I don't know that that could be as well. Yeah. Um, Weird. I don't know. Guess we'll never know. It was forever ago, so there's mm -hmm. no one to ask anymore. Now, but I don't know if you knew this. Uh -huh. In uh, 2012. Um, they discovered her attorney's original notes from the trial at a law firm in Boston. Oh, wow. It was a successor law firm to, to the family attorney, Mr. Jennings' firm. And uh, there was some thought that those notes would eventually be uh, 
preserved and shown to the public and that maybe there's something in there. Maybe there's a confession from Lizzie or an opinion from the attorneys. But uh, according to to uh, Ms. Robertson, the, the, the author of the trial of Lizzie Borden, that the attorneys have decided that those notes are still covered by attorney-client privilege and, ca- and cannot be released, even though, of course, the, the, all the principles in the case are, are long dead. Right. So there's there are some documents out there that that may shed additional light or that may just be, you know, doodles at the defense table while someone else was testifying. But maybe there is something out there that that will shed some light on this. If we ever get to know. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Well, we'll be the first to report. Indeed. Probably not the first, but (laughs) one of the first. (laughs) I found something interesting on, on Wikipedia. Scholar mm-hmm. Ann Schofield notes that Borden's story has tended to take one or the other of two fictional forms, the tragic romance and the feminist quest. I wanted to know your thoughts on how this is a tragic romance and how this is a feminist quest. I did have to look up tragic romance and it means uh, a tragic romance should end in suffering often as a result of death, illness, or some other circumstance that tears the lovers apart. Well, since I can't find any evidence that that she was ever involved in in any type of a romance, uh, I'm not sure how tragic romance qualifies. I mean, I guess it would have to be if one of the rumored ones was true. Right, right. Now there is also something. There are also rumors out there that perhaps she had uh, been in a long term abusive relationship with her own father, mm-hmm. and it finally snapped. But again, there's no evidence of that. So. If any of our listeners have an idea of how this qualifies as a as a tragic romance, I'd love to hear it. But I would think a tragic romance requires another person mm-hmm. and uh, doesn't I, seem to be one. I do feel like I'm back in AP English in high school mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> analyzing it. Yes. What do you think about the feminist quest? What, what do you mean by that? I don't know. Ask <laughs> Anne. <laughs> Uh, again, the, there, there, there are some some writings out there, some articles out there where someone does say that she may have been a proto-feminist, that she had been uh, kept down by her father and basically kept a prisoner in the house and not given any money, and that she finally just decided, I don't have to take this anymore, and took took matters into her own hand, along with a hatchet. <laughs> um you know, but again, she doesn't seem to have ever been involved in any, I guess, what we would call uh, early feminist uh, activism. You know, no record of her being a suffragette. There's no, you know, record of her really being involved in anything except from volunteer work at a church. Mm-hmm. Um, once she was acquitted, she just she stayed in Fall River, which surprised a lot of people. But she kept to herself. She never spoke about the trial. Ever, from what we can tell. So, again, I'm not sure where the feminist angle would fit in here. So, again, if anyone else has some ideas, please let us know. Mm -hmm. Now, I see this rather than than a a gender issue. I see this more as a class issue. Mm -hmm. The town was divided. The elite in town, the, the white Protestant upper classes, Originally rallied around Lizzie. They they could not believe that someone from their class, someone of their upbringing, could possibly have committed such a horrendous murder. Uh, she was uh, there was one article that referred to her as a Protestant nun. Hmm. That she was uh, again just involved in charity work, involved in the church, uh, and that no one from no, no woman, especially from their class, could ever commit this horrendous crime. But on the other hand, there was a substantial immigrant population, primarily Irish in town, and they had their own newspaper. And from the outset, they were adamant that uh, she had done this. And um, the town was really kind of set upon itself during the trial that, uh, um, you know, on, on one hand, the the uh, immigrant community felt that they were being scapegoated, that uh, if they could have found an immigrant to hang it on, they would have. So I, I see this more as a, a class issue than a gender issue. Interesting. I can see that. Yeah, and that 
brings me to another question I have for you. Mm-hmm. So whether it's a gender bias or a class bias, when you when you were an attorney, how did you deal with biases like these in in a trial? Did you like I guess I'm asking, do attorneys use these to their advantage or do they try and create a level playing field? Does it depend? Oh no, you're in a in, in our in our system, the attorney's job is to present the best possible case for their client. Mm-hmm. And uh so certainly gender played a role in things like jury selection, depending on the type of crime, depending on the type of defendant. You might not you might want not want women on a jury, or you might want a jury that com- that is comprised mostly of women. You're trying to think who would be most sympathetic to my client. Does so, each attorney, does each side get to pick jury people? Right. Yeah. There's oh. a pool. There's a pool of of prospective jurors, and you question them to make sure no one has any prejudices. Like, you know, do you know my? Do you know the defendant? Do you know the victim? If so, they're not going to serve on the jury. But you know, you end up with twelve people, and then each side, prosecution and defense, gets a number of challenges, where you can just say. You don't have to give a reason. Uh, you could say strike number six, and juror number six has to leave, and then someone else takes their place. Once your challenges are over, um, you know that's the jury that you have. So, uh, you know, you 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 always. Uh, the last jury trial I was in, my uh, my client and I were seated at the table, and we were watching things like body language. We were, you know, trying to figure out who would be most sympathetic to our client. I mean, the uh, it was a trial involving, uh, I believe, some work done on a home that, that the homeowner didn't feel was done uh, the way they wanted it done. And it was a, the homeowner was a woman and my client was a young man. And so we were trying to make sure that we didn't have any any people on the jury who might identify with with the homeowner. So we didn't want someone her age on the jury. Not necessarily we didn't want any women, but we didn't want a someone her age that mm-hmm. would feel, yeah, this guy would try to take advantage of me too. Mm-hmm. So yes, we that plays still plays a tremendous role mm-hmm. in our system. Yeah, because you're trying to like we talked about last week, you're trying to create a story to gain Yes. Sympathy, right? Yeah, I mean, in the the to American, get them onto your side. Yeah, yeah, the American judicial system. It's called adversarial. Mm. Uh, it's not all the lawyers are trying to 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 find justice. Mm-hmm. Right. We're trying, trying to win. <laughs> we're we're trying to. If you're a prosecutor, you're trying to send someone to jail. If you're a defense attorney, you're either trying to get them off or minimize jail time. Mm-hmm. So if you don't like that, move to France. Are there? <laughs> What's in France? That's a completely different system. (laughs) Are there rules about what you said? Like, is there a, doesn't sound like there are, but could a judge say that's too biased what you're arguing? You cannot use race as as an excuse to keep someone off a jury. But again, since you don't have to give a reason, it's, Mm. it's hard to say, well, you know, that's, you're excluding, say, all black people from a jury. Uh, you use your challenge. You, if you use your no challenge reason. and they all happen to be black, that would be a question for appeal, I think. Mm-hmm. But um, hmm. that's the that's the only rule right now is that race cannot be a factor oh, wow. in challenges. But anything else would be wide open. Very interesting. I learned so much just now. I wanted to move to the parents. Mm. I wonder what it was like to be an unmarried 32-year-old woman in the 1890s. Like, I can't believe she couldn't be on her own. Mm-hmm. Is that just because of a class she was in? Because uh, in the fashion section, I talked about women working. So is that just because it was too beneath her to work? Yeah, I, I, it was a class thing. It wasn't a, it wasn't a steadfast rule. By the 1890s, there were there were a number of very prominent women journalists in mm-hmm. in the country. Ida Bell, oh, I can't remember her last name. If there's a book behind you, I think it's called Ida Bell Turbell. I think's her name. One of one of the leading journalists in our uh, in our time. 
There was a woman there named Elizabeth Jordan who wrote for the New York World. So, you know, women were entering the workforce at that time. But again, the 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 class that a person was in, I think, determined a lot. Mm -hmm. And if you came from the upper class, um, work was beneath you Mm -hmm. and your family didn't want you to work. So it's not they they weren't allowed by law. It's I think just a, a class. It's a class structure that said you don't do that. Mm-hmm. That's sad. And especially in the case of, it seemed, I feel like she probably wanted to get out and do things and mm-hmm. was probably heavily persuaded not to. Yeah. Uh, this kind of reminded me, this case reminds me of an old timey Gypsy Rose, Gypsy Rose Blanchard case. There are quite a few differences, but. Uh, do you know this case, Dad? I don't. I Enlighten me. I bet you will when I tell you. Uh, Gypsy Rose Blanchard. It, it's in, uh, darn, it's somewhere in Missouri, pretty close to us. The Ozarks, maybe, is where this happened, and it's fairly recent. Uh, she was a young girl who her mother told everyone she had cancer or had all these health issues. She would. She was in a wheelchair. Her head was shaved, you know, to look like she had undergone chemotherapy. Mm. Basically, gosh, now I can't remember the mom's name. Her mother had Munchausen's by proxy. I remember this case now. I remember this case now, yes. And uh, Gypsy and her boyfriend killed the mother, Mm -hmm. stabbed her, I believe. Mm -hmm. And I I feel with Gypsy, it was also she was feeling trapped and like she couldn't live her life because Mm -hmm. her mother wouldn't allow her to be with the boyfriend. And if I remember correctly, please correct me if I'm wrong, somebody, but Gypsy had a heavy hand in deciding to kill her mother. Like it wasn't, I don't, I'm pretty sure she wasn't persuaded solely by the boyfriend. Like, it's not like, no, I don't want to. I think it was definitely partly her idea, if not all of her idea. Uh, But she pleaded guilty to second degree murder and is serving a 10 year sentence. I'm not sure where she is in that sentence, but I know it's been multiple years. And the boyfriend was convicted of first degree murder and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Does she have such a lesser sentence because she pleaded guilty? Defense attorneys have a have a a, a maxim that we try to live by when there are when there's more than one person involved in a crime. That maxim is the first to squeal deals. Uh-huh. So if you can get one defendant to turn on the other one and testify against the other one, more likely than not, your client will get a lesser sentence. The charges will be reduced and uh, the prosecutors are interested in convicting somebody for the maximum crime. So the first one to squeal gets the best deal. Mm. I'm going to assume without knowing anything about it, that's what happened here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I, I mean, that's along the lines of what I was thinking. Uh, so that kind of negates my second bullet <laughs> point. What I wrote was, it was still interesting that if if we were, we didn't really touch on this, but if we had touched on like Lizzie getting acquitted because she was a woman, I wrote, it's interesting that the female in this case, in the Gypsy Rose case, uh, had such a lesser sentence than her boyfriend, a male. But again, I would need to remind myself of the case. And mm-hmm. and it's because she squealed first. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> But we'll have to uh, do that crime sometime, Dad. Yeah, I'd like to. I'm. Uh, Can you see where it was? It was close to us. Yeah, I'm looking at it uh, right now. She is currently serving a 10-year sentence at the... Chillicothe Correctional Center uh-huh. in Missouri. So uh, she is still in jail. And I'm looking at the pictures right now. And it's. Uh, <laughs> they lived in a uh, Habitat for Humanity house. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let me see where. Uh, Springfield, Springfield, yep. Missouri. Dee Dee yep. was the mom's name. That's mm-hmm. right. So this happened in 2008. Right. So. Or so that's she, when they moved to. I don't know. Something happened in 2008. So she's probably getting close to to being out, would be my yeah. guess. Mm-hmm. And there's a really good show about this on Hulu. It's Gypsy called The Rose, Act. Yeah, Gypsy Rosa Blanchard is her name. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. So she, uh, 
She pled guilty in 2016, and she'll be eligible for parole uh, in 2024. Coming up. Yep. So she'll be out in a little bit. Mm -hmm. So because this is such a, because uh, Lizzie Borden is such, you know, it's one of those cases that we all know about. Well, most of us know about forever, um, mainly because of the nursery rhyme. It's obviously been depicted in media a ton. And I wrote down a few, more than a few, but I didn't write down the whole list. Um, Mm -hmm. There are four, probably more than this, but I found four stage productions. There was one on Broadway called Lizzie Borden in 1952. There was a ballet in 1948 called Fall River Legend. There was an opera in 1965 called Lizzie Borden. Mm Mm-hmm. I would love to play the role of Lizzie Borden in the opera. (laughs) There you go. Someone reboot that opera and hit me up. And then there was a play called Blood Relations in 1980. And then I found a few on the silver screen. We have two TV movies. I'm sure there are many more. There's The Legend of Lizzie Borden in 1975. And then Lizzie Borden took an axe in 2014 on Lifetime. And there was also a Simpsons episode in 1993. Borden appeared in the episode Treehouse of Horror 4, where she, among the members of the Jury of the Damned, alongside other infamous historical villains such as Benedict Arnold, John Wilkes Booth, and Edward Teach, among others. It sounds like a fun episode. <laughs> now, do you do you happen to know who played Lizzie Borden in the 1975 TV movie? I don't. Elizabeth Montgomery. Samantha from Bewitched. Oh, fun. Who is also a distant cousin of Lizzie Borden. Ooh. And she's a witch. Yes. <laughs> now that's I'm a whole to wiggle my nose. That's a that's an entirely different venue to explore. It is. Yes. Do 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 All right, I'm done. That's I dream of genie, by the way, not Darn bewitched. It. What bewitched? <laughs> bewitched. Da, 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 da. There we go. Now there I'm right. we go. I get yes. those two mixed up. Yes. Thank you for the correction. <laughs> there was also a Supernatural episode. I know a lot of people are watching Supernatural right now. And we mentioned it in another episode of our show. In the Supernatural episode with Lizzie Borden, Sam and Dean investigate the Lizzie Borden house after several people are murdered with an axe. Spoiler alert coming. They originally suspect that the ghost of Lizzie Borden is the one responsible for the murders, but then discover that the murderer isn't her. What a letdown. Hmm. And there was a song uh, that was depicted about Lizzie Borden. It was called She Took an Axe. It was a song by Flotsam and Jetsam in 1986. Never heard it. I'm going to look either. it up after this. Song. I haven't either. That's all I got. Well, quite quite interesting, and I'll be I will be interested to see if any of our listeners have anything to add to this. But uh, mm-hmm. probably one of the first real media trials um, in 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 history um, via newspapers mm-hmm. and magazines. Magazines, magazines were big deals back then. Huh? It's very cool. Dad, would you mind looking and seeing who we have next week? I'll be glad to do that right now as you talk about the merch I that we still have. I will give a rundown of the merch. So, it is getting warmer outside, and I'm going to switch up the merch a bit. So, if you want a long sleeve tee, please get one now because I will be replacing those with tanks very soon. So, we have hoodies, crew neck sweatshirts. T-shirts, short-sleeved and long-sleeved T-shirts. We have stickers. Oh, I'm also going to be taking away the beanies. So if you want a beanie, uh, we have stickers, lots of fun stuff. Uh, the website is cocktailsofcrimeandfashion.company.site, S-I-T-E. It really helps us out a ton if you purchase them, purchase anything. And all the designs were created by local designer Lucy Besh. And they are super cute, aren't they, Dad? They certainly are. They're not just our logo. They're like actually really cute designs. So check it out. That's right. Well, next week, we're going to be looking at one of the most famous unsolved crimes of the 20th century. The legend of D.B. Cooper. (gasps) And I know nothing about this yet. So this will be fun. (laughs) 
Well, we will see you guys next week with DB Cooper. All right. Have a good week. Bye. Bye. This has been Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. If you're enjoying our show, please leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show. Join our VIP Facebook group, Cocktails of Crime and Fashion VIP, to discuss cocktails, crime, and fashion, and to watch exclusive video content. Follow us on Instagram at Cocktails of Crime and Fashion. We also have merch. There's a link in the episode notes. Cocktails of Crime and Fashion was written and produced by Mike Norland and Macy Norland Burkett. Our editor is Don Bailey at pretendmachine.com. Thank you to Alex Joaquim for composing our theme music and to Kaylee Bitter for designing our cover art.